It's a staple of routine obstetrical intrapartum management, isn't it? The IUPC, the intrauterine pressure catheter, was first introduced in the early 1950s. And, well, it's basically unchanged even up to this day. There's definitely some pros to using the IUPC, but there's also some potential cons. In this episode, we're going to review the latest data regarding uterine activity monitoring intrapartum. And while we'll focus on IUPC for the pros and cons, we'll also introduce or reintroduce a concept that's been relatively hot on and off for the last five years or so, which is the practice of measuring electrical uterine activity, or EUM, for electrical uterine monitoring. It's not ready for the mainstream yet, but there's actually a product already out on the market. So we're going to discuss here this staple of intrapartum care, which is IUPC, and go over some concepts that we may have forgotten, even though we use this thing almost daily. Because even though there's some guidelines set in stone for this, which, once again, I'm 100% in favor of, it just makes you question some of the data that went into that. Are you curious? Well, you should be, because we're going to cover a lot of data right now covering the IUPC pros and cons and whether EUM can solve those. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. As a quick disclosure, although this episode will focus on the IUPC, its science, its data, and even its limitations, we'll briefly touch on a new concept, which is EUM, which is electrical signal uterine monitoring, uh, basically a uterine EMG. This is out there. It's got published data on it, and there's some advantages to that that we'll touch on. All to say, this episode is not sponsored by the manufacturer of that device or by any other product that's related to this episode. So again, I have no financial disclosure, but we will talk about the Monica, the Navi wireless system, just as a comparison to the IUPC, even though I have no financial ties, proprietary interests, or other connections to that company. Ever wonder why it's called Montevideo? Uh, I had somebody tell me years ago here in College Station, uh, it's a brand new student, so I'm not going to give him any grief. Uh, But he came up to me and said, "Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Chubb, I read something. Can you explain to me what a Monty video is? Uh, And I nearly kicked him out. I get it. He didn't know what it was. But Monty video, I think I cracked up like the whole week for that. I know that's wrong. I'm sorry. I'm just human. But it's Monty video, right? So Monty video uh, or MBUs were actually a, a concept that was brought forth by two physicians first in 1949 and then published uh, in 1952. Okay. Is that crazy or what? Think about this. I mean, just two thought leaders ahead of their time. And it's kind of wrong that one 
provider, one of the researchers, really gets all the credit. Uh, it's mainly attributed to Roberto uh, Caldero uh, Barcia, and, and it should be. I mean, he, he did a lot of work for this. But there was a second provider, and that was Hermogenes Alvarez. Don't make me spell it. Uh, but it's uh, Hermogenes, if you can, right? Hermogenes Alvarez, uh, Hermogenes Alvarez. So these two physicians out of Montevideo, Uruguay, were the ones that brought this forth back in 1949 and then published uh, through a New York publication, an academic sciences publication, in 1952. Anyway, Montevideo, uh, it's not Montevideo, although I'll give you some grace if you call it Montevideo, uh, or MVUs are fine, but they are Montevideo. Look, I'm the first to admit I like the IUPC when it's appropriate. I like to see what's going on in the uterus. I'm super conservative. If you ever get a chance to work with me in labor and delivery, uh, you know, I'm super by the book. I'm kind of uh, very gun shy. I pull the trigger very quickly on things, sometimes too fast. Uh, but that's because I'm just very cautious. I'm, I'm very conservative in care. Uh, and even though I know the data uh, may or may not be there, we'll discuss that regarding IUPCs and TOLACs, uh, it just makes me feel better. <laughs> Uh, but that's very anecdotal, and that's me, because I'm going to discuss that in a minute, right? Does IUPC use during a TOLACT, is that somehow safer than using a tocodynamometer, all right? Uh, we're going to discuss a lot of that. But my point is, when used appropriately, the IUPC can help gauge management. I mean, oh, that's obvious. I mean, ACOG, SMFM, FIGO, everybody recognizes that right now, the only way to determine the adequacy of a contraction strength is when with an intrauterine pressure monitor. Uh, but there's some catches to that. Did y'all catch that, obviously? It's intrauterine pressure monitor. Well, what happens if she's got vasoprevia? Vasoprevia is obviously a contraindication to amniorexis. I mean, you can't break the bag of water because it's a bleeding risk. Or what if there is a funic presentation? The cord is a presenting part, and sometimes you can kind of feel that through an intact amniotic sac. Breakage of the bag there in order to do internal pressure monitoring uh, would be contraindicated. It's a risk for cord prolapse. I understand that those are not very common. I'm just trying to set the stage here uh, for things to consider as we go down this, this pathway of IUPC narrative. All right, We're going to do the basic signs and do the pros and the cons. All to say the IUPC, while definitely accepted and definitely the norm and the requirement in order to diagnose failure to progress or rest of dilation because that requires Montevideo unit assessment right now, uh, there is some limitations to it. So once again, definitely the norm, IUPC, but in certain conditions, there is some contraindications. And we're going to set up once again, some potential limitations of this besides what we've just discussed with vasoprevia and the Funic presentation. Before we go any further down the IUPC path, let's just remind ourselves that there are three universally accepted methods for uterine contraction assessment. Okay, those three already out. Everybody gets those. And then one that's on the horizon. Let's knock that one out real quick. That's EUM, the electrical uterine monitoring system. And that's super high tech. But at the other end of the extreme, we have the super low tech one, which is manual palpation. Like, who does that? It's still a thing. Remember, we're talking about worldwide. I'm not saying it's most frequently used in the U.S., but it is a thing. 
So three common methods for uterine contraction assessment, uh, but manual palpation, which is recognized by the ACOG when needed, and external tocodynometry only tell you about uterine contraction frequency. Can't really tell strength by that, all right? The third is, of course, what we're talking about here, which is IUPC measurement, which tells you both frequency and strength. And then the last, as we mentioned, the super high-tech one, which is EUM, that's new on the horizon, as electrical uterine monitoring. So the three are manual palpation, external TOCO, IUPC measurement, and then the fourth one now on the horizon is EUM. So right now, EUM is, again, not widely adopted. There's no guideline for that. This is not coming out of an ACOG document. But I'm letting you know what's on the horizon. Uh, and maybe at some point, we'll be eating into the IUPC landscape. You and I both know that as BMIs increase in the U.S., doing the palpation method or even using a tocodynometer is getting more and more difficult. I mean, palpation relies directly on the ability to feel the uterine fundus. And if there's a lot of sub-Q tissue there, uh, obviously that's not possible. It's not palpable. And the same goes true with a tocodynometer. I know I've had this experience. I know you probably have as well, where you just can't pick up anything, yet the patient is progressing down, even though the tachydonometer can't actually locate the contraction because of the intervening uh, thickness of the subcutaneous tissue. That's where the IUPC comes in. So remember the main indications for IUPC. One is the one that we just discussed, inability to trace any kind of contractions because of BMI. And there, then it's that juggling act between breaking the back too early uh, and potentially exposing her to prolonged ruptured membranes, which is a risk factor for IAI. And remember, that's not just about maternal fever, but the rise in, the, in interleukins in the fetal compartment uh, potentially also could be harmful, that pro-inflammatory state. So we don't want to rupture too early, uh, but at the same time, we have to have a good idea of what's going on in the uterus. And that's a case-by-case -case issue. Remember that ACOG does address that in the Approaches to Minimize Interventions in Labor and Delivery Bulletin that talks about trying to be as conservative as possible and only doing that amniotomy if it's really worth uh, the potential risk of, of ruptured membranes and infection. So if you have inability to monitor the contractions, then an IUPC is definitely reasonable, especially in the active phase. And then once in the active phase, an IUPC can help you figure out if the patient needs either augmentation or a C-section, because the only way to figure that out is to find out what the Montevideo units. Remember that right now, the cutoff for arrest of dilation is 200 Montevideo units per 10 minutes for four hours, uh, assuming that the other maternal and fetal conditions are reassuring, or ruptured membranes at least six centimeters and six hours of a non-pitable pattern, meaning uterine inertia is just not responsive to oxytocin anymore. So in the active phase with protracted labor, an IUPC obviously can help you figure out, hey, the patient isn't changing because she's just not doing anything. She needs oxytocin augmentation. Or we can't go any further with Pitocin augmentation because she's already adequate uh, based on Montevideo unit cutoff and then needs a C-section. So there's very well-defined uh, indications for, for Pitocin for uterine monitoring. But there's also another indication for an IUPC. Y'all remember what that is? 
that's amnio infusion. <laughs> so if there's periodic variable D cells or recurrent uh, variable D cells, rather, uh, then an IUPC is the, the tool through which you can do an amnio infusion. I'm not going to talk about macro amnio infusion. We covered that in the past because there is this movement back or at least this discussion back that maybe we should be offering amnio infusion for mech to decrease our particulate matter burden. That is a thing. And you can go back to the archive for that one. All to say there's definite indications for the IUPC, but even the IUPC itself and how we calculate Montevideo units has gone into controversy and debate. I'm going to explain that next. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In 1949, the concept of measuring the pressure inside the uterus was proposed by the two physicians we talked about in the intro. And then in 1952, it was put out as a peer-reviewed publication. But a major criticism of the Montevideo unit is that contraction duration and the resting period between contractions are only indirectly accounted for by this calculation. Let me explain what that means. Right now, we measure Montevideo units from the baseline to the top, right? The peak of the contraction. So if the baseline is, let's make it easy, 10 millimeters of mercury, and the top of the contraction is 70 millimeters of mercury, then the Montevideo units for that contraction, of course, is what? 70 minus 10 at 60. Everybody gets that. We all do that every day in labor and delivery. But what's not measured is the rise, is the duration of the rise of the contraction getting up to that peak of 70, and then and that downward trend, all of that space there uh, is part of the contraction strength and the effectiveness of the contraction. So that's not taking account in, into the traditional Montevideo unit calculation. So as a way to get over that, others have proposed other ways of counting strength, but they definitely have not taken practice, taken hold in mainstream practice. One is called the Alexandria unit. Like, what the heck is that? Well, you can Google it or I can tell you. The Alexandria unit is equivalent to the Montevideo unit, but it's multiplied by the mean duration of the contractions over a 10-minute period. There's also something else called called the planimeter unit, and that actually takes a look at the area under the curve. It takes a look at the entire duration of the contraction, the resting pressure, and that rise, peak, and then uh, recovery phase of the next contraction. So there's all these different uh, proposals out there, but they definitely have not been able to knock down the Montefiore unit designation and calculation because that's so ingrained into obstetrics. You can go anywhere in the world and ask any obstetrical care provider how they grade, how they measure a contraction strength. And of course, they're going to say the Montevideo unit. I doubt anyone will say, oh, we use the Alexandria units now, or the active planimeter units, or the total planimeter units. Those are all published and they're out there. They're just not adopted into clinical practice because they're tricky, they take more math, and they're just not as easy as counting MVUs. Plus, we have, what, 70 years of history with the Montevideo unit? All to say, there are other proposals out there to look for uterine strength, but there's no doubt that the Montevideo unit right now is the most widely accepted worldwide. 
But it is true that there are other factors to contraction strength that could cause the patient to progress without just reaching the 200 Montevideo units per 10 minutes per four hour algorithm. Now think about this. How many patients have we looked at in labor and delivery where you look at their contractions like those are puny, but they're making cervical change. Even though you have an IUPC in and they're nowhere close to the 200 Montevideo units for 10 minutes for four hours, but it's working for them. So that's one of the criticisms is that patients can definitely change with Montevideo units under the 200 guideline, but the 200 Montevideo units for four hours maximum right now that's adopted by the college is how you definitely diagnose arrest of labor. But knowing, of course, we have to realize and accept that some patients can actually make cervical change without getting to that Montevideo unit strength cutoff. So I'm not saying not to use a 200 cutoff, a Montevideo unit cutoff for four hours. That is ACOG adopted and universal standard. But some patients may make appropriate cervical change without getting to that strength of contraction per 10-minute interval. Dwight Rouse and others published back in 2001 in the Green Journal a study that followed 501 women undergoing oxytocin augmentation for active phase arrest or dystocia. These authors found that up to 44% of nulliparous women and close to 47% of multiparous women were able to deliver vaginally without ever getting close to the 200 Montevideo unit cutoff. So all to say, 200 Montevideo units per 10 minutes for 4 hours is definitely the criterion right now for for failure to progress arrest of dilation, right? We can't make the contractions any stronger. But just to realize that some don't need that contraction strength uh, to make effective cervical change. So that's one of the conundrums, and that's one of the difficulties with IUPC. We get so stuck in the 200 Montevideo units cutoff, uh, and that's that's correct. We should be looking for that as an absolute cutoff to when we say labor has failed. But some women may effectively change without getting to that contraction strength. Oh, and here's a clinical pearl. Remember that more is not always better, so that increased uterine activity, including higher mean Montevideo unit strength per contraction or increased contraction frequency, have both been associated with higher risks of fetal acidemia. So remember that getting to a mean target range of 250 or 300 Montevideo units uh, per 10 minutes consistently is not necessarily a good thing. You can wear that child out. It can also in some studies uh, lead to the development of Bandel's band, Bandel's contraction ring. That's where the lower uterine segment gets so thinned out and ballooned, but the fundus of the uterus gets so hypertrophic uh, and uh, and overactive that there's a step off in between called Bandel's contraction ring or BANDL. So the true pathophysiology of that hasn't been figured out, but all to say that's why there's a target range of 180 to 200 with 200 really being the max. And if a patient starts to overshoot that, then consider titrating the Pitocin down because more is not always better. Some obstetrical providers, whether it's a physician, the nurse, or the midwife, some feel just more comfortable using an intrauterine pressure catheter in the setting of a TOLAC, just so we can really see what, what is actually going on inside the uterus in terms of contraction strength. But is that any safer? Well, the short answer is, unfortunately, no, <laughs> because all of the studies that have been done on this have not been able to document any increased safety profile with the use of an IUPC. 
In a review of 76 cases of uterine rupture, 39 of which were monitored with an IUPC, loss of intrauterine pressure or cessation of labor was not observed in any of these patients. Now, I know that we get that. That's one of the most common things that's put out there as a test question is, what do you see? Uh, But that's not the most common thing seen with uterine rupture. Because the most common thing is fetal heart rate bradycardia. So an abnormal fetal heart rate is the most common thing. Of course, symptomatically, the patient can experience uh, acute onset of severe abdominal pain. And of course, that acute pain may or may not be accompanied by abnormal vaginal bleeding. A separate case control study of women who underwent TOLAC compared nine cases of uterine rupture with 48 successful cases and 35 failed cases that underwent a repeat section. These were all followed with an IUPC, and they were looking for changes in the Montevideo units over time. There was no association found between Montevideo units and uterine rupture. Another systematic review took a look at the patterns of uterine activity with uterine rupture in these TOLAC cases. This was published in Archives of Gynecology and Obstetrics back in 2017. The short of it was there was no conclusive evidence that showed that TOLAC with an IUPC was any more judicious, was any more cautious, or was any quicker to identify cases of rupture than cases that used tocodynometry. Remember why we're talking about this, guys. We're definitely not saying not to use an IUPC. An IUPC is definitely the way to go. It is the gold standard currently uh, to assess contraction strength, right? And to determine whether you need to titrate Pitocin, uh, how to titrate Pitocin safely, or when a patient has true arrest of labor based on set criteria. Uh, but the idea that women have to be 200 months for the units to change is not necessarily true because some can change without that strength. And at the same time, the thought that uh, that all TOLACs need an IUPC is not evidence-based because it doesn't seem to change any outcomes, whether they have an external tocodynamometer uh, or an IUPC. I think we all get so comfortable with the IUPC and we just take it for granted, but it does have these limitations and there are some potential risks. These risks are small and the benefits definitely outweigh them, but we have to be able to, to realize that and remind ourselves of this and even tell the patient when we do an amniotomy and we're going to place some internals, hey, by the way, there's some really rare stuff. Uh, I don't anticipate that happening, uh, but these things are out there. One of the risks that can happen is placement of the IUPC between the amniotic sac and the uterine wall. That's called extramembranous placement. I think I've actually done that in the past. Extramembranous placement of the IUPC has been documented to occur anywhere from 14 and in some studies up to 38% of IUPC placement. So don't rush with it. It's still considered an obstetrical procedure, even though we do it every day. So do this correctly. Make sure that you're intra-amniotic. And if you can't feel really where you are, don't force it because it could be extramembranous placement. Although extramembranous placement is rarely associated with any real complication, some of them could be significant and require emergency intervention. Also on the rare side is uterine perforation, but that has occurred with an IUPC. It's rare. It's been documented to occur anywhere between 1 in 300 and 1 in 1,400 cases, but it is out there. 
also, sometimes the IUPC can be placed uh, into the placenta. That can lead to placental abruption or placental vessel perforation. That's been documented. So again, even though we do it so commonly, we don't even think about it, just be mindful. And it's a good thing to kind of review uh, during your department meetings that, guys, an IUPC is still considered an obstetrical procedure and it should be respected. Now, if you're thinking, man, that is super rare, like abruption and going into a placental vessel, uh, isn't like the risk of infection higher? Well, the truth is the data doesn't really support that because a lot of these is hard to separate the issue of just being ruptured in and of itself versus being ruptured with an IUPC. But it doesn't seem right now that maternal fever and chorioaminitis are a specific risk of IUPC placement. They're just risk of being ruptured overall. One of the studies that looked at this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2010 by Backer et al., This randomized women diagnosed with labor dystocia to either IUPC or external TOCO, and they demonstrated no difference in the use of antibiotics or clinical signs of maternal or neonatal infection between the groups. So again, you would think it's a foreign body, kind of leads to excess infection, but it's really just the fact of being ruptured and the duration of rupture that's the issue in general than the IUPC adding additional risk on top of that. All right, podcast family, without a doubt, the IUPC is ingrained into modern obstetrical practice, and that's worldwide. It definitely has a role, but it also has some few issues and challenges that we've already discussed. So as a way to overcome some of those, there's been growing data on the use of EMG technology, which is non-invasive, to try to track contraction strength and frequency. Let's get into EUM, electrical uterine monitoring, next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think this is fascinating. The electrical activity of the uterine muscle was first recorded over half a century ago. That was published in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, back in 1950. And now, from just first publishing that in 1950 to the use of EMG as a way to monitor uterine contraction strength, uh, it's now coming to a reality. Again, this is definitely not widespread practice, but there is already a device that is wireless, use little sticky electrodes to put on the patient's abdomen, and it can track not just contraction strength, but also maternal heart rate and the fetal heart rate as well. Uh, and it's non-invasive. And the data actually shows it works pretty good. Of course, the biggest issue here right now is that it's expensive (laughs) and hospitals don't have a way to incorporate this uh, on a mass level, even though, remember, medicine moves fast. And this may be in the near future, at least that's the thought, that this would eat up into some of the IUPC landscape. 
there is data for this. I mean, there's several publications that have shown that using this EMG activity, this EUM, this electrical uterine monitoring, can be done in a non-invasive fashion with transabdominal electrodes, and it can measure uterine contractions, not just intrapartum, but antepartum as well. One of the benefits of this is that it doesn't seem to be uh, limited by BMI. So unlike a Doppler, that's hard to find the baby's heart tracing sometimes when you're trying to do an external uh, tracing, like for an NST, and you can't find that heart rate. Uh, it's there, just BMI gets in the way. This seems to function very well, even in patients that have higher BMIs. So to be clear, this is not actually measuring the contraction, right? It's not measuring the contraction strength, but the electrical activity that causes that strength. You're basically measuring the depolarization, uh, the electrical activity in the uterine cells uh, in the myometrium that leads to the contractions. These are low amplitude EMG bursts uh, before a patient goes into labor. And then during labor, those amplitudes uh, get higher. Now, the trick is we don't know how to read that right now. <laughs> I mean, people have to be trained for that, but there is these algorithms that plot out basically this conversion to mimic an IUPC tracing that's called the intrauterine pressure estimated waveform. So it looks like an IUPC tracing, but it's measuring the electrical activity. This has been studied for a while now, and even back in 2004 in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, Mall et al. tried to compare the uterine activity by IUPC to this transabdominal EMG uh, EUM activity, and they found that there is a strong correlation. Those bursts of energy across the uterine wall translated basically to strength of IUPC contractions uh, and translated it into possibility of delivery. So this has been correlated and studied uh, against the benchmark of IUPC, and the results are pretty encouraging. Ah, but you know nothing is perfect because this is picking up electrical activity. And sometimes not all the electrical activity translated into a true contraction. So unlike IUPC, the EUM technologies can provide some readings of activity that basically correlate to false positive contractions. So you see, guys, there's nothing that's perfect. The IUPC has some potential issues, but EUM also can provide some readings of false positive reads that don't actually correlate to true contraction efficacy because it's mild depolarizations as the uterus is getting ready to contract, but isn't really to the level of a true burst of activity with true functional contraction strength. All right, podcast family, as we get ready to wrap this up, just a quick word about EUM. Yes, there is a device out there. It's called a Monica device, uh, the Novi. It's wireless, looks really nice. It also is much more expensive than the traditional IUPC. And it's only right now cleared uh, for patients that are 37 weeks or above, all right? So it's not for preterm gestations. But again, here at Clinical Pearls, we're just all about giving you the info. So if somebody ever asks you, hey, have you ever heard of the uterine EMG device for monitoring of uterine activity during labor, you go, oh, the Monica Novi system. Yes. Yes. And I'm quite familiar with it. It uses EMG technology to provide an EUM tracing. That's electrical uterine monitoring tracing that is non-invasive and can mirror and or rival the IUPC technology. 
Huh? How about that? See, we're just trying to get you ready to answer those questions in case somebody tries to ask you about it. Definitely not ready for mainstream, but it is out there. Uh, and again, the whole purpose of this episode is just to kind of understand why we do some things, why we put an IUPC. It's not benign. What are some risks? And just to really bring back that healthy appreciation of one of the most common interventions that we do intrapartum, which is placement of the IUPC device. All right, podcast family, I hope you found this helpful. See, the whole purpose of this episode was for us to just take a step back and relook at something that we do so commonly in labor and delivery that sometimes we just take for granted what we do so commonly. And it's healthy, I think, to take a step back and then ask ourselves, wait, why are we doing this? What's the science behind this? Are there any real risks to this? And how is this going to affect our management? Because everything we do to our patients has some potential potential limitation, benefit, and or risk. And it's good to remind ourselves of this. If you found this helpful, you can get more information about this because this was taken in part from some of the data from a new expert review that's coming out in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The title of this expert review is Assessment of Uterine Contractions in Labor and Delivery. All right, podcast family, thank you for being part of our podcast community. And as always, we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.